how wonderful to see you all. Um, I'm excited about what we're going to do um, in this series of conversations. And I'm particularly excited uh, about last time and, and this time because the idea here is to open the shutters or maybe blow off the shutters from the windows um, through which we see God and dare to let him be um, so much greater uh, than we, we shrink wrap him to be. When we let God come into our box and reform him over in our image, then we lose some of the awe of God. And um, my hope is that this whole series of conversations will just sort of blow the walls out of our boxes and bring us up more into his arena rather than us bringing God down into ours. And so the idea here of anything that I present to you in any of these conversations is not for doctrine and it's not for dogma because anything that is so shrouded in the mysteries that we're looking at, um, we dare not, we, we make a mistake if we bring it into something that I emphatically believe and I insist that other people believe. Um, the idea here is to let God be supreme, to let him be who he is, and let us be recrafted uh, in his image. And, uh, and to see uh, the world not from our anthole up trying to make sense of the universe, but to step out of our anthole and uh, look at the universe uh, from a different perspective. And uh, so tonight, before we get started, let's ask the Lord's guidance and his blessings. Heavenly Father, as your people have so long said, blessed are thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Help us to come before you, humbled by who you are, by what you've done, and inspired by where you want to take us and how you want us to be. Thank you for your love that comes to us in a personal, intimate way. Thank you for the grandeur and the majesty and the glory of who you are and of your universe and of your creation. Help us to come in touch with that tonight. Help us to be changed by that tonight. Help us to move into praise by that this night. I pray this in the name of the Lord and Savior of our souls, Christ Jesus. Amen. So we, um, last time we started with Genesis 1-1, and we're going to go to Genesis 1-1 in a minute. Uh, <clears throat> but what I want to do is, first, I want us to just look at uh, some scripture in Psalm 145. And I want to read verses 3 through 5. The psalmist understood some things of God in, the, in his awe of God that you and I sometimes uh, fail to latch on to. But in Psalm 145, verses 3 through 5, the psalmist says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty and of your wondrous works. And going down to verse 10 through 12, 
All your works shall praise you, O Lord. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glorious majesty of your kingdom. And that's why we're here. Is to let his great works magnify him and bring us in touch with his majesty. So we're going to start uh, on the flip side of the coin that I started on on the conversations of the mystery of earth because I want to talk a little bit about what scientists think that they have found and what indeed uh, they are finding. Uh, you know from Einstein who believed that there was a static universe and that in a sense uh, you know students of Einstein decided that that the earth had always uh, the universe had always been that it uh, was not changing it was eternal and therefore there was no need for a creator now Einstein didn't believe that because he said God does not play dice with the universe so Einstein didn't have a problem with God but the scientists that kind of followed in Einstein's wake began to uh, have problems seeing the universe as being created uh, eventually Einstein's own mathematics led people to believe that this universe could not just be static could not just be here and stationary, that it had to be an expanding universe a, or a collapsing universe, a changing universe. And eventually over time, with the measurement uh, instruments that they now have, they are indeed finding that this universe is expanding, that our galaxy is being drawn toward another object uh, millions of light years away at a speed of uh, a million miles an hour. Our whole galaxy is being drawn uh, across the universe. Of course, it's so large that it would take another million years for it to get there to whatever that object is. They call it the great attractor. And uh, there are other galaxies that are, are moving away from us at half the speed of light. And they know this by the shift in the, 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 shift in the, the spectrum, the light spectrum that they, that they uh, find in their measurements that there is a great decided shift that represents uh, speed. So they are realizing that this universe is an expanding universe. And we now have telescopes that go peer into space close to 12 to 15 billion light years out. Now, what's a light year? Most of you know that, but if you don't, a light year is the speed that light, the distance that light travels in a year. And it travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. So in a year, light will travel six trillion miles. Okay, and we have telescopes that peer into the universe about 15 billion light years. Multiply that by six trillion. It's mind-boggling. And uh, the scientists are beginning to realize that the size of the universe means that there had to be absolute perfect tuning at its very beginning because something this big could not exist and survive. Stable um, for very long. It would collapse or it would expand out into nothing. Um, so you know we look at these things that scientists are really certain about 
And the question that I'm asking uh, today is what do you and I as Christians do with this? Is there space in scripture to make room for this? And my suggestion is that there is space in scripture to make room for this. It may not be the case, but I think that you and I as Christians need not be fearful of science. Science is not the antagonist of God, it reveals God. Now what scientists choose to do with science is a whole different matter. How they choose to interpret science is a whole different matter. But science itself is a revealer of God. It's a revealer of the creator and his ways and how he tinkered with everything and how he set everything in fine-tuned motion. So I, part of my, my hope here in all these conversations and the mystery of God and his creation is that we don't have to be afraid of what science truly is finding. I mean, we may be skeptical of what their conclusions are about it because some of their conclusions are incorrect. But I want us to look at scripture here and um, I want us to start with uh, Genesis 1.1. And I, I wish I had time to go back and kind of really recap some of what we hit last time in Genesis 1.1. But in, in the first verse, and the second verse, are some real tantalizing morsels of mystery. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, last time we looked at this, and the Hebrew word for without, words for without form and void mean ruin. In the beginning, the earth was in ruin. Actually, not in the beginning. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the earth was in ruin, waste, vacant. And yet in Isaiah 45, um, 18, uh, it says that God created, if I can get to Isaiah 45, I know it's in here. Um, in verse 18 he says, The Lord created the heavens, God himself formed the earth, and he made it. He established it, he created it not in vain, in a sense not void, not in vain. He created it, but he formed it to be inhabited. So when we go over here to verse 1 and 2, and God created the heavens and the earth, and then suddenly the earth was in ruin, it was different than his proposed plan in Isaiah that we just read. He created the earth to be inhabited. Elsewhere we'll see tonight, he created the earth for man. So what we saw last time was the real possibility that there was a pre-Adam earth. And in fact, in Jeremiah 4.23, which we won't go into this time, it really alludes to the possibility that there were civilizations and cities in existence before the earth became void and without form before the earth became in ruins. And so then that takes us back to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and the fall of, of Lucifer from heaven and what that did to earth. That's what we covered last time. Uh, this time though, I want us to look here in verse two, what was it that was in ruin? What was it that was void and without form? It was not heaven, it was earth. In the beginning, before this cataclysmic darkness that came upon the earth, before this 
gargantuan flood of waters that snuffed out all life, evidently, and that's just a, that's an assumption, something that you all need to go look at. But it appears that this, these waters that were on the face of the deep snuffed out all life in an earth that was created before verse 2. But that cataclysmic event happened to earth. It did not happen to heaven. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and it was the earth that was void and without form. And so even before man, heaven was in full array. Let's um, go to um, Isaiah. No, first I want to go to Psalm 115.16, and then we'll go to Isaiah 66.1. Let's look at the possibility that this earth has greater intent than just for, I mean, this universe has greater intent than just for earth and just for man. So in Psalm 115, verse 16, it says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. Okay, let me read that again. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. In other words, he created the earth for you and me, but he created the heavens for whom? For himself. Yes, it blesses us, but there is a greater purpose to the heavens. The heavens, and the, the word for heavens here, or heaven, means heaved up things. Heaved up. It's as though he, he just threw it out there and heaved it out into the void. Only he heaved it not with his hands, but with his words. With his voice, he spoke light and fire and wind into the void. Uh, but the heavens, he says, are for me, for him. Uh, turn over to Isaiah 66.1. Not that we're not going to be totally blessed and utterly enjoying uh, the heavens and the universe, but its purpose has more to it than that. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 66 of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, the heaven, the heaved up things, is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. So in a very real sense, the heaven is, the heavens are his tabernacle. In fact, he uses that word over in uh, another place in um, Psalms, Psalms 18. Uh, if you'll turn back to that, in Psalms 18, um, he talks about, uh, the, the psalmist talks about uh, God bowing the heavens and coming down. And um, I want to look at a word that he uses there in Psalm 18. Verse 9, I'll begin. He bowed the heavens also and came down. By the way, Einstein's theory of relativity predicted that the universe was curved, bowed, if you will. 
uh, he bowed the heavens also, and he came down, and darkness was under his feet, and he rode down upon a cherub and did fly. In verse 11, he made darkness his secret place, his pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. This seems to be harkening back to the beginning of creation in Genesis 1. But his pavilion round about him were the dark waters and the clouds. And the word pavilion there means booth or tabernacle. You remember in the New Testament, Christ attended the Feast of the Booths? Same word, tabernacles. So I think in a much more real sense than you and I have figuratively understood the heavens, I think maybe the heavens really are for God. They really are for him as his cathedral, as his throne. Not his only throne, because we understand in Revelation that there is a new Jerusalem and there is a throne there and there is a, a heavenly throne. But in a very real sense, I think God is saying to us, this universe is for me, the eternal God. It is, for, it is my playground. The earth is your playground. And my footstool, by the way. Um, look over in Jeremiah 43, verse 10. Now, here is uh, where he's talking about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Babylonian um, uh, authority. So he's talking about an earthly king, but he's using a similar word. And he's saying to them, verse 10 of Jeremiah 43, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them, his royal tabernacle, his royal palace. Same word that is used in Psalms to describe what the universe, what the heavens, these heaved up things are for God. So we're looking at maybe seeing the universe from a different through a different lens. Let's look here in Jeremiah 31. I want us to look at the possible size of the universe according to Scripture. So turn over to Jeremiah 31. Now we'll have a break after a while and uh, for refreshments. And then for those of you who want to come back and have discussion and uh, question and answer and just kind of kicking things around, uh, that's the fun part of this. So I invite all of you to come back. But look here as it pertains to size. Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea from the waves thereof. Verse 36. If these ordinances de depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation. Verse 37, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I also will cast out all the seed of Israel. In other words, I will cancel my covenant with Israel. If you can measure the heavens. If you can measure the heavens, I'll cancel my covenant with Israel. Go over to chapter 33, verse 22. 
He says essentially the same thing. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, the stars of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of sea measured, so will I multiply the sea of David. Verse 25, if my covenant be not with the day and night, if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away Jacob. He is saying that this earth, uh, this universe is so vast. Is he not saying that? That if you can measure this universe, I'll cancel my covenant with Israel. Now, where are we going with this? Does that mean, well, he was just talking to the people at that time, and he didn't foresee the creation of telescopes in our 21st century that can peer out 16 billion light years away? Is he saying that he missed that? That he only meant that for that time, if the heavens could not be measured? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he was, appear he was peering through time for all time. He understood that all of the aspirations of man, all of the successes of man in how we can understand the universe and how we can see into it, they still would not be able to measure the universe, to measure the heavens. If they can be measured, I'll cancel my covenant with Israel. So we have these telescopes that go out 16 billion light years, and, and what do they find out there? What are they finding out there? The universe is still there. There are still galaxies. There are still stars. They're not at the end. Even when they are at the beginning, they're not at the end. So what do you think this is saying to us about the possibility that the universe really could be 16 billion years old? If you can measure it, I'll cancel my covenant with Israel. I, I, I think maybe he's just blowing us out of our box. Uh, and as I said, the scientists that are recognizing how big this universe is, uh, one scientist said the most compelling reason to believe in a creator is the size of the universe. <laughs> because it gets this big, and if it's not perfect, he used the word perfect. If it's not perfect at its beginning, the universe could not possibly exist, could not possibly hold together the way it's holding together. After 16 billion years, it's still expanding and it's still holding together. Let me read to you a couple of quotes from a couple of scientists. Uh, Robert Jastrow. Uh, one of the leading uh, astrophysicists and astronomers. And you know, what we're talking about here is the Big Bang. You know, scientists many years ago came up with the idea of the Big Bang, and very few of them understood that it would eventually lead them to God. There were a few. Fred Hoyle was one of the, the few. He was a student of Einstein, and he understood that it was going to lead to the idea of a scientific version of Genesis. And that's what he said. He said, the Big Bang is a, is a scientific version of Genesis. And so he resisted the idea of the Big Bang. But the scientists have more and more come to the, to the realization that there was a cataclysmic event way back in time 
that put everything perfectly in motion. And so here is Robert Jastrow. He says, science has proven that the universe expanded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into this universe? And science, he says, cannot answer these questions. Because according to astronomers, in the first moments of its existence, the universe was compressed to an extraordinary degree and consumed by the heat of a fire beyond human imagination. They said we can't comprehend it. Scientists are estimating that the universe, the heat of the universe at the very beginning of its creation, they're now calling it creation or creative uh, event, was over a billion degrees Fahrenheit. They can't comprehend it, nor can we. Where did that heat come from? Well, here's the thing. God, everything that God created has come out of God. All that has been created was created by Christ the Word. And it came out of the being of God. It came out of the nature of God. All creation did. So when he looked upon everything that he created at the end of Genesis 1, he said, behold, it was very good. And the reason it was very good is because the nature and the character of God is good. He cannot create anything that is not good. And so this enormous heat that scientists say was present at the beginning of the universe, this heat that, that created billions of suns, billions and billions, as Carl Sagan used to say, billions and billions of suns, um, where did that heat come from? Where did that fire come from? Well, it came from God himself. Hebrews um, 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. In Psalm 50, when he leaves Zion, does anyone remember what goes before him? A fire goes before him. Now this is not a fire. When he leaves Zion to come in his second coming, this fire from heaven goes before God, goes before Jesus in his second return, and it consumes all that is not holy. It is the holy fire of God, and mankind has no concept of the holy fire of God. It burns away everything that is not holy here on earth. Okay? And it's not judgment. It's just His holiness is a fire. Remember when His holiness descended upon Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai? It burned the mountain. They have found a mountain in that area that is granite, solid granite, no trees on it, no grass on it or anything, and up at the very top of it, for several feet on the top peak of it and down, it is blackened. And people who've gone up there and have broken some of those blackened, melted rocks, when they break them in two, they're solid granite on the inside. But the, the top half inch of that granite mountain has been melted. And that's in the very area where Mount Horeb is supposed to be. I would suggest that the only way that kind of granite 
could be melted is that there, on the top of it, where there's nothing to burn, is that the holiness of God descended upon it in quaking and thundering and lightning, and it burned the mountain, and it melted it. This is that fire of God that when he created and spoke this immense universe into existence and heaved it out, this is what spoke the fire and the wind into the universe, was his very breath. So you turn to 2 Peter 3.10, and we have a prediction of the end times. This fire that goes before Christ when he leaves Zion in his, his second coming, in his return to earth. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements, the elements, the elements, the elements that make up our world the way it is, those microscopic subatomic elements will melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It was this fire that ends the world and it was this fire that began the universe. You know, we, from dust to dust, from ashes to ashes, from fire to fire. It is the holy fire of God, creation, the universe created out of him. And it is a heat that Robert Jastrow said we cannot, it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our imagination. Now, I want to give you a couple of other words here in the Hebrew that help us to better understand uh, this universe and its creation, I think. Um, in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 19, we'll just turn to Psalm 19, but Genesis 1 uses the same, um, the same word. He talks about putting a, a firmament in the King James, a firmament between the waters, dividing the waters, and he called that firmament heaven, the heaved up things. Okay, in uh, Psalm 19, he uses that same word, and I want to I talk to you a little bit about that word. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. The word firmament there probably in your version may, may read expanse. Probably expanse. That is the, the preferred understanding of this uh, not Greek word, but Hebrew word, um, R-A-Q-U-I-A, it means expanse. The, na the verb for that, R-A-Q-A, means spread out. It means an action, an expansion, is another word that early uh, Hebrew uh, scholars have used. Um, to describe the meaning of these two Hebrew words, that it is something in motion. It is something spread out across a vast expanse, an expanding universe. Uh, uh, 
1 of, uh, of uh, yeah, Psalm 19, verse 1. In Isaiah 48, 13, turn there for a moment. Isaiah 48, 13. There's a different word used here. My hand has uh, also laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. 